Part four, chapter nine of Australia Felix. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Australia Felix by Henry Handel Richardson. Part four, chapter nine. Henry Ocock was pressing for a second opinion. His wife had been in poor health since the birth of their last child. Mahony drove to Plevna House one morning between nine and ten o'clock. A thankless task lay before him. Mrs. Henry's case had been a fruitful source of worry to him, and he now saw nothing for it but a straight talk with Henry himself. He drove past what had once been the great swamp. From a bed of cattle-ploughed mud interspersed with reedy water-holes, in summer a dry and dust-swept hollow. From this the vast natural depression had been transformed into a graceful lake, some three hundred acres in extent. On its surface pleasure-boats lay at their moorings by jetties and boat-sheds, Groups of stiff-necked swans sailed or ducked and straddled, while shady walks followed the banks where the whip-like branches of the willows, showing shoots of tenderest green, trailed in the water or swayed like loose harp-strings to the breeze. All the houses that had sprung up around Lake Wendery had well-stocked spreading grounds, but Ocock's outdid the rest. The groom opening a pair of decorative iron gates which were the showpiece of the neighbourhood, Mahony turned in and drove past exotic firs, Morton Bay fig-trees, and araucarias, past cherished English hollies growing side by side with giant cacti. In one corner stood a rockery, where a fountain played and goldfish swam in a basin. The house itself, of brick and two-storied, with massive bay windows, had an ornamental veranda on one side. The drawing-room was a medley of gilt and lustres, mirrors and glass shades. The finest objects from Dandaloo had been brought here, only to be outdone by Henry's own additions. Yes, Ocock lived in grand style nowadays, as befitted one of the most important men in the town. His old father once gone, and Mahony alone knew why the latter's existence acted as a drag, he would no doubt stand for Parliament. Invited to walk into the breakfast-room, Mahony there found the family seated at table. It was a charming scene. Behind the urn Mrs. Henry, in beribboned cap and morning wrapper, dandled her infant, while Henry, in oriental gown and Turkish fez, had laid his newspaper by to ride his young son on his foot. Mahony refused tea or coffee, but could not avoid drawing up a chair— touching the peachy cheeks of the children held aloft for his inspection, and meeting a fire of playful sallies and kindly inquiries. As he did so, he was sensitively aware that it fell to him to break up the peace of this household. Only he knew the canker that had begun to eat at its roots. The children borne off, Mrs. Henry interrogated her husband's pleasure with a pretty may I or should I lift of the brows and gathering that he wished her to retire, laid her small plump hand in Mahony's, sent a graceful message to dearest Mary, and swept the folds of her gown from the room. Henry followed her with a well-pleased eye. His opinion was no secret that in figure and bearing his wife bore a marked resemblance to Her Majesty the Queen, and admonished her not to fail to partake of some light refreshment during the morning in the shape of a glass of sherry and a biscuit. "'Unless, my love, you prefer me to order cook to whip you up an eggnog. "'Mrs. Ocock is, I regret to say, entirely without appetite again,' he went on, "'as the door closed behind his wife. "'What she eats is not enough to keep a sparrow going. "'You must prove your skill, doctor, and oblige us by prescribing a still more powerful tonic or appetizer. "'The last had no effect whatever.' "'He spoke from the hearth-rug, where he had gone to warm his skirts at the wood-fire, audibly fingering the while a nest of sovereigns in a waistcoat pocket. "'I feared as much,' said Mahony gravely, 
and therewith took the plunge. When some twenty minutes later he emerged from the house, he was unaccompanied, and himself pulled the front door to behind him. He stood frowning heavily as he snapped the catches of his gloves, and fell foul of the groom over a buckle of the harness, in a fashion that left the man open-mouthed. "'Blow me if I don't believe he's got the sack,' thought the man in driving townwards. The abrupt stoppage of Richard's visits to Plevna House staggered Mary, and since she could get nothing out of her husband, she tied on her bonnet and went off hot-foot to question her friend. But Mrs. Henry tearfully declared her ignorance. She had listened in fear and trembling to the sound of the two angry voices, and Henry was adamant. They had already called in another doctor. Mary came home greatly distressed, and Richard, still wearing his obstinate front, she ended by losing her temper. He knew well enough, said she, it was not her way to interfere or to be inquisitive about his patience, but this was different, this had to do with one of her dearest friends, she must know. In her ears rang Agnes's words, "'Henry told me, love, he wouldn't insult me by repeating what your husband said of me. Oh, Mary, isn't it dreadful, and when I liked him so as a doctor?' She now repeated them aloud. This was too much for Marnie, he blazed up. "'The confounded mischief-monger, the backbiter! "'Well, if you will have it, wife, here you are, here's the truth. "'What I said to Ocock was, I said, "'My good man, if you want your wife to get over her next confinement more quickly, "'keep the sherry decanter out of her reach.' "'Mary gasped and sank on a chair, letting her arms flop to her side. "'Richard!' she ejaculated. "'Oh, Richard, you never did!' "'I did indeed, my dear.' "'Oh, well, not in just those words, of course. "'We doctors must always wrap the truth up in silver paper. "'And I should feel it my duty to do the same again to-morrow, "'although there are pleasanter things in life, Mary, I can assure you, "'than informing a low mongrel like Ocock "'that his wife is drinking on the sly. "'You can have no notion, my dear, "'of the compliments one calls down on one's head by so doing. "'The case is beyond my grasp, of course, and I am cloaking my own shortcomings by making scandalous insinuations against a delicate lady, who takes no more than her position entitles her to—his very words, Mary—for the purpose of keeping up her strength. And Mahony laughed hotly. "'Yes, but was it—I mean, was it really necessary to say it?' stammered Mary, still at sea. And as her husband only shrugged his shoulders— "'Then I can't pretend to be surprised at what has happened, Richard. "'Mr. Henry will never forgive you. "'He thinks so much of everything and every one belonging to him.' "'Pray, can I help that? "'Help his infernal pride? "'And, good God, Mary, can't you see that far more terrible "'than my having had to tell him the truth "'is the fact of there being such a truth to tell?' "'Oh, yes, indeed I can.' "'And the warm tears rushed to Mary's eyes. "'Poor, poor little Agnes!' "'Richard, it comes of her having once been married to that dreadful man. "'And though she doesn't say so, yet I don't believe she's really happy in her second marriage either. "'There are so many things she's not allowed to do, and she's afraid of Mr. Henry. I know she is. "'You see, he's displeased when she's dull or unwell. She must always be bright and look pretty. "'And I expect the truth is, since her illness, she has taken to taking things, just to keep her spirits up.' "'Here Mary saw a ray of light and snatched at it. "'But in that case, mightn't the need for them pass as she grows stronger?' "'I lay no claim to be a prophet, my dear.' "'For it does seem strange that I never noticed anything,' went on Mary, more to herself than to him. "'I've seen Agnes at all hours of the day, when she wasn't in the least expecting visitors. 
"'Yes, Richard, I do know people sometimes eat things to take the smell away. But the idea of Agnes doing anything so... so low! Oh, isn't it just possible that there might be some mistake?' "'Oh, well, if you're going to imitate Ocock and try to teach me my business,' gave back Mahony with an angry gesture, and sitting down at the table he pulled books and papers to him. "'As if such a thing would ever occur to me! It's only that... that somehow my brain won't take it in. Agnes has always been such a dear, good little soul, all kindness. She's never done anybody any harm, or said a hard word about anyone all the years I've known her. I simply can't believe it of her, and that's the truth.' "'As for what people will say when it gets about that you've been shown the door in a house like Mr. Henry's, why, I'm afraid even to think of it.' And powerless any longer to keep back her tears, Mary hastened from the room. But she also thought it wiser to get away before Richard had time to frame the request that she should break off all intercourse with Plevna House. This she could never promise to do, and the result might be a quarrel.' whereas if she avoided giving her word, she would be free to slip out now and then to see poor Agnes, when Richard was on his rounds and Mr. Henry at business. But this was the only point clear to her. In standing up for her friend she had been perfectly sincere. To think ill of a person she cared for cost Mary an inward struggle. Against this, however, she had an antipathy to set that was almost stronger than herself." Of all forms of vice, intemperance was the one she hated most. She lived in a country where it was, alas, only too common, but she had never learnt to tolerate it, or to look with a lenient eye on those who succumbed, and whether these were but the slaves of the nipping habit, or the eternal dram-drinkers who felt fit for nothing if they had not a peg inside them, or those seasoned topers who drank their companions under the table without themselves turning a hair, or yet again those who, sober for three parts of the year, spent the fourth in secret debauches. Herself she had remained as rigidly abstemious as in the days of her girlhood, and she often mused, with a glow at her heart, on her great good fortune in having found in Richard one whose views on this subject were no less strict than her own. Hence her distress at his disclosure was caused not alone by the threatened loss of her friendship, she wept for the horror with which the knowledge filled her. Little by little, though, her mind worked around to what was, after all, the chief consideration, Richard's action and its probable consequences. And here, once more, she was divided against herself. For a moment she had hoped her husband would own the chance of him being in error, but she soon saw that this would never do. A mistake on his part would be a blow to his reputation, besides making enemies of people like the Henrys for nothing. If he had to lose them as patience, it might as well be for a good solid reason, she told herself with a dash of his own asperity. No, it was a case of either husband or friend. And though she pitied Agnes from the bottom of her heart, yet there were literally no lengths she would have shrunk from going to, to spare Richard pain or even anxiety. And this led her on to wonder whether, granted things were as he said, he had approached Mr. Henry in the most discreet way. Could he not have avoided a complete break? She sat and pondered this question until her head ached, finding herself up against the irreconcilability of the practical with the ideal, which complicates a man's working life. What she belatedly tried to think out for her husband was some little common-sense stratagem by means of which he could have salved his conscience without giving offence. He might have said that the drugs he was prescribing would be nullified by the use of wine or spirits, even better have warned Agnes in private. 
Somehow it might surely have been managed. Mr. Henry had no doubt been extremely rude and overbearing, but in earlier years Richard had known how to behave towards ill-breeding. She couldn't tell why, but he was finding it more and more difficult to get on with people nowadays. He certainly had a very great deal to do, and was often tired out. Again, he did not need to care so much as formerly whether he offended people or not. Ordinary patients, that was. The Henrys, of course, were of the utmost consequence. Still, once on a time, he had been noted for his tact. It was sad to see it leaving him in the lurch. Several times of late she had been forced to step in and smooth out awkwardnesses. But a week ago he had poor little Amelia Grindle up in arms, by telling her that her sickly firstborn would mentally never be quite like other children. To everyone else this had been plain from the outset, but Amelia had suspected nothing, having, poor thing, no idea when a babe ought to begin to take notice or cut its teeth. Richard said it was better for her to face the truth betimes than to spend her life vainly hoping and fretting. Indeed, it would not be right of him to allow it. Poor dear Richard! He set such store by truth and principle, and she, Mary, would not have had him otherwise. All the same, she thought that in both cases a small compromise would not have hurt him. But compromise he would not, or could not. And, as recalled to reality by the sight of the week's washing, which strained, ballooned, collapsed on its lines in the yard, Biddy was again letting the clothes get much too dry. As Mary rose to her feet, she manfully squared her shoulders to meet the weight of the new burden that was being laid on them. With regard to Mahony, it might be supposed that, having faithfully done what he believed to be his duty, he would enjoy the fruits of a quiet mind. This was not so. Before many hours had passed, he was wrestling with the incident anew, and a true son of that nation, which, for all its level-headedness, spends its best strength in fighting shadows, he felt a great deal angrier in retrospect than he had done at the moment. It was not alone the fact of him having got his congé. No medico was safe from that punch below the belt. His bitterness was aimed at himself. Once more he had let himself be hoodwinked, had written down the smooth civility it pleased Ocock to adopt towards him to respect and esteem. Now that the veil was torn, he saw how poor the lawyer's opinion of him actually was, and always had been. From memory was struggling to emerge in him, setting strings in vibration, and suddenly there rose before him a picture of Ocock that time had dimmed. He saw the latter standing in the dark crowded lobby of the courthouse, cursing at him for letting their witness escape. There it was. There, in these two scenes, far apart as they lay, you had the whole man. The unctuous blandness, the sleek courtesy, was but a mask, which he wore for you just so long as you did not hinder him by getting in his way. That was the unpardonable sin. For Ocock was out to succeed, to succeed at any price and by any means. In tracing his course no goal but this had ever stood before him. The obligations that bore on your ordinary mortal— a sense of honesty, of responsibility to one's fellows, the soft pull of domestic ties, did not trouble Ocock. He laughed them down, or wrung their necks like so many pullets. And should the poor little woman who bore his name become a drag on him, she would be tossed onto the rubbish-heap with the rest. In a way, so complete a freedom from altruistic motives had something grandiose about it. But those who ran up against it, and could not fight it with its own weapons, had not an earthly chance." Thus Mahony sat in judgment, giving rein for once to his ingrained dislike for the man of whom he had now made an enemy, 
in whose debt for the rest he stood deep, and had done, ever since the day he had been fool enough, like the fly in the nursery rhyme, to seek out Ocock and his familiars in their grimy little parlour in Chancery Lane. But his first heat spent, he soon cooled down, and was able to laugh at the stagey explosiveness of his attitude. So much for the personal side of the matter. Looked at from a business angle, it was more serious. The fact of him having been shown the door by a patient of Ocock's standing was bound, as Mary saw, to react unfavourably on the rest of the practice. The news would run like wildfire through the place. Never were such hotbeds of gossip as these colonial towns. Besides, the colleague who had been called in to Mrs. Agnes in his stead was none too well disposed towards him. His fears were justified. It quickly got about that he had made a blunder. All Mrs. Henry needed, said the newcomer, was change of air and scene. And forthwith the lady was packed off on a trial trip to Sydney. Mahony held his head high and refused to notice looks and hints. But he knew all about what went on behind his back. He was morbidly sensitive to atmosphere, could tell how a house was charged as soon as he crossed the threshold. People were saying, "'A mistake there. Why not here, too?' Slow recoveries asked themselves if a fresh treatment might not benefit them. Lovers of blue pills hungered for more drastic remedies. The disaffection would blow over, of course, but it was painful while it lasted, and things were not bettered by one of his patients choosing just this inconvenient moment to die, an elderly man, down with the Russian influenza, who disobeyed orders, got up too early, and was carried off by double pneumonia inside a week. Worry over the mishap rubbed his poor medical attendant of sleep for several nights on end. Not that this was surprising. He found it much harder than of old to keep his mind from running on his patients' outside working hours. In his younger days he had laid down fixed rules on this score. Every brain-worker he held must, in his spare time, be able to detach his thoughts from his chief business, pin them to something of quite another kind, no matter how trivial keep fowls, or root around gardens, play the flute, or go in for carpentry. Now he might have dug till his palms blistered, it would not help. Those he prescribed for teased him like a pack of spirit presences which clamour to be heard. And if a serious case took a turn for the worse, he would find himself rising in a sweat of uncertainty, and going lamp in hand into the surgery, to con over a prescription he had written during the day. And one knew where that kind of thing led. Now, as if all this were not enough, there was added to it the old evergreen botheration about money. End of part four, chapter nine.